Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. I'm here, as always, with our General Manager, Tony Anderson. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon, once again. Today is a monumental day for Co-op Energy Talk because this is our first podcast from the road. We're in Grand Rapids at the Michigan Electric Cooperative Symposium. And this afternoon, we had the opportunity to hear a safety message from Brad Livingston, and we really just wanted to share that with our listeners. Uh, while employed with a natural gas pipeline company, Brad was involved in a potentially life-ending explosion 27 years ago. And what struck me so much about your story, Brad, is that your accident, and you say this over and over in your presentation, was 100% preventable. And there's just so much that we can learn from it. And Brad and his wife, Bobby, now live in Canyon, Texas. They have three grown daughters and 11 grandchildren, right? That's and right. The, uh, the, the other thing that really struck me in your story was kind of the ripple effect that this incident has had on, on your entire family. So uh, Brad is joining us today to share his story and what our listeners can learn from it with us. And, and I guess to kick us off, Brad, can you just tell us about your accident and what happened? Sure. And first, I want to thank you for having me. And, uh, but yeah, it was uh, on September 20th, 1991. I was upgraded just for the day to be a welder helper. It was not my normal job. Uh, but I was working with a senior welder who had 30 years experience. His name was Tracy. And we were welding on some tanks, obviously in a way that we should not have been. Uh, due to wanting to save three minutes and not gauge the liquid level in the tanks. Um, Tracy thought we ought to save that time. Uh, we had a little bit of an argument. Uh, I was trying to convince him that we should should uh, gauge him, but I didn't do what I could do to just step in front and, and get him gauged. And as a result, he burnt through one of the tanks. These tanks, there's two tanks. Uh, each tank had a pinhole leak in a weld that went around the fire tube and so Tracy was going to patch over those welds. Uh, just went about an inch or so past the pinhole leak welding uh, to patch it. Uh, he welded on the first tank and got that done and moved to the second tank. Uh, because we did not gauge the liquid level in the tanks to find out that it was actually not as high as we were told that it was. Um, he, re he burned above the liquid level and at that point he was too hot with his welding machine and he burned a hole in, in the side of the tank and it exploded. Because what was in the tank was, along with a little bit of crude oil, was drip gas. And drip gas is water that was down in the natural gas formation. Bring the gas out of the ground, the water will come with it. And that water's taking on the characteristics of the natural gas. Now it's just like gasoline. So it's very explosive. So when he burned through the tank, of course, it set that off as an explosion. And uh, that explosion came out of the tank right where he was welding. I was caught directly in the updraft of that explosion. Fireball hit me and threw me up out of the fireball. And then I came back down through it again as it was still going up. And I landed on top of the other tank. Was there approximately 10 to 12 seconds trying to find a way out of the fire. And then that tank exploded and threw me back on the ground on the opposite side of the tanks that I'd even started out from. Uh, I was taken to Burn Intensive Care Unit, Lubbock, Texas. And this was on Friday, uh, Friday night. I had surgery. They had to replace my left femur bone with a metal rod, which is the only bone, fortunately, that I had broken in the two explosions. Uh, but I started having trouble breathing. And then Saturday, the doctors met with my family 
explained to them about the burn, 63% burn, second, third degree, and that I had about a 5% chance of survival. And then Saturday night, um, they, they told my family that they had done all they could do to keep me alive and that I would probably not make it through that night. And they had done what they call escherotomy, it's because my body swelled as a result of the heat that I had been in. Uh, it, blood can no longer pump, and so they, they cut me down each arm, down each leg, and across my chest so that tissue could expand so that blood could flow. And those were basically all the kinds of things they could do to keep, keep me alive. And, and Saturday night, um, sure enough, my heart did stop several times. Uh, the, there's a respiratory therapist who stayed in my room and he'd hit me on my chest, heart, heart struck going again. Uh, I was unconscious for two and a half months. I had jeans on that were 60% cotton, 40% polyester. And of course, we all know what that's gonna do in a fire, the polyester melt and it melted through my outer layer of skin and the second layer, the dermis layer, and then it burned and melted into the muscle of my legs as well. So I lost uh, quite a bit of muscle as well. Yeah. I didn't have my gloves on because Tracy had said there's not gonna be any grinding or brushing for me to do as a helper. So I didn't put my gloves on, even though I knew it was a good practice to have them on at a welding location because you never know what might happen. But mine were in the seat of the truck. And, and unfortunately, PPE doesn't work from the seat of the truck. And uh, so my hands were severely burned as well. So my wife was told one day that they would have to amputate both my legs and both my hands. If I even lived, and I didn't think I would. Uh, as time went on, uh, I did maintain better blood flow than they thought I would. Uh, so they said I would just lose my feet and fingers, but then it was just by the grace of God, I didn't even lose any of those. Became conscious two and a half months after explosions. Learned that Tracy had been killed in the explosion, uh, which which starts you know the whole guilt feeling of you know survivor guilt and all that. And uh, she had had to deal with that. And then uh, wondering why, why did I not do what I could have done when I had the opportunity on the job to prevent. The man, Tracy was a good man, but he, he just had this one thing against one supervisor. He didn't want to talk to him to plan this job right. And uh, and he's the he's the big guy. He's got 30 years with the company and, and people look up to him and, and he took care of people. But just this one time, he wasn't willing to listen to what we needed to do to make sure that this job's gonna go right. And as a result, he's dead. And uh, so when I got home, I had to go see his wife and I just felt obligated to, to look her in the face and explain why I didn't stop him. And of course, that's a bad day. Mm -hmm. and, and it was very painful for her and I, but we had to have that conversation. And uh, so that's part of why, I, you know, I, I don't think people should ever have to go through that. Mm -hmm. and, and I won't ever allow myself to go through it again. If I see somebody doing something, I'm going to interrupt them and I'm going to stop them and because if I have, if I see it and don't do it, then I may need to go see their family again. You know what it's like to live with that, yeah. There's a lot of lessons in your story and a lot of things you're teaching people by telling your story. What are two or, two or three of the top things you want people to learn from your story? You know, the number one thing is what I talk about, our actions have to justify what happens afterwards. You know, I think the saying is that 
the means justifies the ends. Well, to me, that's backwards. I think the the means. That's a great point. Yeah, and and they don't justify. When we want to take a shortcut, we we had to save three minutes that day. That does not justify what I went through physically and what I live with to this day. And certainly doesn't justify a man dying. Mm-hmm. And then he has a widow who wants answers about why her husband is dead. And what my family went through as a result of, of me being unconscious for two and a half months and then having to learn to walk again. And, but in the meantime, they keep hearing, well, dad's probably going to die any day now. And, and then... I travel around and I hear everywhere. Uh, coming here, and I find out you know an employee was killed just a week ago. Uh, it, it never has to happen, and, and I think that's the biggest takeaway. I want people to know that what they do, their actions, whether it's a shortcut or becoming complacent or just having a bad attitude, that has to justify everything that goes on afterwards. And and the answer is simply that it's not going to. And that's why it's so important to follow the procedures and stop work if if something's not right and that's kind of the second that would be my second point if we know something's going on something is dangerous something's uh, maybe about to happen because somebody's not paying attention we have to have the courage to step in and say wait a minute we, we can't do this and and most companies are pushing you know stop work authority but there are too many people who still think they, they don't really have that right. Mm-hmm. But the truth is you have the responsibility mm-hmm. to do it for your family, for your coworkers, the company, because all those people are going to be involved if something goes bad. And, and to me, that's the main takeaway. I mean, you've got to, you have to be able to justify what goes on afterwards. We, there's no way for us to justify that by saying that we saved three minutes. Mm-hmm and not gauging those tanks. And there's no way to say it when when someone is in a vehicle accident and seriously injured or killed, or they kill someone else. And there's no way, to, no way to justify that by saying, well, but I had this text I had to answer, mm-hmm. or I was on my phone. And, and certainly ladders, we all know, you know, people fall off ladders all the time, and they think, well, I just I had to get where I was, Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't justify what might happen at the end. So you, you, you know, obviously went through not just this accident, but all the aftermath of that. And a lot of people in that same situation would have um, just this happened and I'm now going to live my life with it. But you've chosen to share your story with others. Why are you compelled to share your story? What, what, what drives you to do that? It's partly this, just like I was talking about, have to go see the family. I know what my family went through. And I know it would have been so simple to just stop these explosions that they never had to happen. So in order to prevent that from happening again, in my mind, I need to tell my story. I need people to hear this is what's going to happen. It's not, it, uh, it's not just one person getting hurt. It's the whole ripple effect about everyone that's going to be affected. So to me, I am driven to tell my story as much as I can possibly tell it. And, you know, I'll go anywhere, I'll talk to anybody because I want them to know this is why you don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what it's going to do to everybody else because you think you can throw the procedures out the window or whatever, and you know, it's what I call reinventing the wheel. Uh, that, that doesn't have to be done. Mm-hmm. 
And then also, a good man died. Tracy was a good man. He taught a lot of people a lot of good things. He loved racehorses. And and to me, he should be retired today raising racehorses. Um, so I'm not going to say that I feel obligated towards Tracy, but I don't want his death to be in vain. So why can't we learn from someone else? If we can't, we're just hurting ourselves. So I want people to learn that from this death of a good man, that I know he would say that's not justifiable. So I want to share my story as much as I can so that no one else has that experience. So that there's no more widows mm -hmm. crying, wanting an answer about why their husband is dead. And we've talked about the ripple effect a couple of times already, and I think our audience will understand what the ripple effect means. But you you tell a unique story in the fact that your ripple effect goes for generations. It goes from you to your kids and now your grandkids. And maybe expand on your ripple effect over the generations. It, it's, uh, it was hard enough watching my daughters. I have three daughters, and they were in seventh grade, fifth grade, and fourth grade when I got hurt. So it's hard enough watching them deal with all of it. You know, kids can be pretty cruel, and my daughters had some cruel things said to them about what their dad looks like, and, you know, her hands look like claws. I mean, those kinds of things. And, and so we had conversations about all that. And I really thought that when my kids grew up and everybody out at work got used to it, that ripple effect would die out. But I learned that's not true because I have a grandson, Grant, who loves football and him and I are, uh, used to always play catch and, and still do. Um, he was two years old when I got him his first little football and he just loves football and playing catch and I love doing that with him. But then when he, he got older and he was in first grade, he wanted to play get a game, and which required me obviously chasing him with the football so I could tackle him. And, and I would have loved to have been able to do it, but I can't run because my legs were burned. I lost too much muscle off of them. And uh, so I have foot drop. Uh, the nerves were all burned off my legs uh, to tell my feet to pick up when I walk. So I have to flop my feet out when I mean, so I can't run. So here we are 22 years after the explosions and I have a grandson want me to play a game of football with him because he's no longer happy just playing catch. He wants it to be a game. And I have to tell him, I can't play a game. I can't chase you, I can't run. And his first comment was, I know Pop, your legs were burning a fire. Why did that have to happen? So 22 years after explosions, I have a grandson questioning me about why I got hurt. And uh, have three more grandsons that are younger and they're all, you know, can go through the same thing. They're all gonna someday question me about why did you get hurt? And how did that happen? And, and it's, it's easy, I mean, it's interesting with my grandkids, each one of them, we have 11 of them. And the first eight, have all or somewhere around the age of four, give or take a little bit, they'll all reach a point where they'll start rubbing my face and, mm -hmm. and seeing, you know, why is it different? And they'll rub my hands. And, and I had one daughter who, who has an exceptionally uh, caring personality. I can remember she just picked my hand up one time and just kissed it. 
And she turned to me and she said, Papa, we still love you. Well, why is she even having to say that? Because she sees that Papa's different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's so that now to this day, I've got these three grandsons still coming up. So we're going to be looking at 30 years after explosions. And I want to be answering to them why I can't do things with them. And, it, and of course, it, I, I'm used to people staring at me. And I walk through airports all the time. I walk funny. I look um, different. Uh, but when I see a little kid, three, four years old, run and stand behind their parents because I'm coming, I can't get used to that. And that, that's one of the hurtful things, one of the things I live with because uh, we say those three minutes. And that doesn't justify now me living with that. But that's that ripple effect that just won't go away. It, it's still affecting people. And Kayla, my youngest daughter, who also travels and speaks, talks about what it's like from a child's perspective to have a parent not come home from work uh, and how she feels every time she hears an ambulance to this day. Uh, she's talked very plainly to me about things she went through and, and what, what it was like for her to have to get used to having a dad that looks like I do. And all the time when she's in high school, we'd go to a high school basketball game or something, well, she'd hold my hand. Well, I always thought, well, that's cool. She loves me still. <laughs> and then I found out that she was doing that because she knew people were staring at me and she wanted them to see that she did still love me. So she wasn't doing it just to be kind to me. She's doing it to show them. You can stare at my dad, but he's still normal. It's what she had in her mind. And even to this day, she is uh, 36 years old. And we can be walking somewhere, and she'll grab my hand. We walk into a public place, she'll grab my hand. And it shouldn't have to be that way. You know, but but the ripple effect just uh, lasted, burned so deep into her as well. And, and she wants to show people. And so... There's still no way to justify any of that. First of all, I just have to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And um, a lot of our listeners are our employees, and a lot of them are frontline employees. So they're they're linemen, they're working metering that those kinds of jobs. If you could give them one, if you could say one thing to them, one takeaway, what would that be? That is the the first one that that I mentioned a little earlier. Any actions you take have to be justifiable. And, and obviously we want to earn a, a salary. We want to have insurance. We want to have, be working for a good company. And, but all of that goes away sometimes when we get in the heat of the moment. We've got to make a decision. We've got to get one more thing done. And the only, thing we're going to, the only way we're going to do that is to maybe cut a corner mm-hmm. or we just have a bad attitude or whatever it is. Maybe we become complacent. That happens way too often. And, and the, the takeaway's got to be that whatever we do in the heat of the moment has to justify everything that goes on afterwards. And I laid in a hospital bed for months, sometimes angry, sometimes crying, sometimes just confused about why we did what we did and then seeing all the effects afterwards 
to my family, my coworkers. We had a guy at the company quit within a month because he thought if an explosion can happen to Tracy Brad it can happen anywhere. And so he quit. We lost a good employee. And uh, the regular welder helper was an outstanding welder. Had a great career in front of him as a welder. He got out of welding because of it. So the, what we did in saving three minutes, not gauging those tanks, does not and cannot justify any of that. So when we're on the job, that's the one thing I tell people, whatever you do, you gotta be able to live with later. So is taking the shortcut or becoming complacent, having a bad attitude, any of those things, will they justify what goes on later? If it, if it will, then you're probably doing it right. If you know it won't, then there's no way it's worth doing. Mm -hmm. There's no one to impress. And that's what we, I think men especially feel that competitive nature. We want to impress people, whether it's a boss or a new kid that came to work or whoever. And we impress them by not following procedures. We like to think, you know, pretty tough, live through our 20s and 30s, think we're pretty invincible, got that little S on our chest, you know, and we find out that's not true. And too many people find out a rough way, like I did. And so, so people just have to know whatever their job is. I speak to every kind of company because it's not the welding, it's not the tanks, it was the shortcut, it was the complacency, it was the bad attitude, lack of communication, all those things that, that played a role in that. Every company has to deal with those things. And that's what they have to know, is none of that is okay when the outcome is not gonna be something you wanna live with. Well, like I said, I, I thank you for taking the time to join us and share your story um, with, with our conference today, but also to join us for the podcast. Um, my pleasure. I, this is something that I, I wish absolutely everyone in our industry could hear. And for those of you listening, especially if you're with other co-ops, if you're looking for an honest and compelling safety mes message for your organization or group, I can't recommend inviting Brad in to speak to you enough. You can find out more um, and, and book him for your event, event by checking out his website at bradlivingston.com. We will include that link with the podcast. Um, and again, Brad, just thank you so much for, for your yeah. time and for taking this incident and using it to help hopefully prevent other incidents yeah. in the future. Thank you very much. Powerful message. We very much appreciate it. Yeah, glad to do it.